The FT. It's March 2000. When fears about the millennium bug had vanished, Europe was enjoying an internet frenzy. Young entrepreneurs at Boo.com flew on Concord for board meetings, and I rocked up at the Financial Times, a young reporter covering the technology beat. It's my first ever job at the Financial Times, and one of the companies that I started writing about was LastMinute.com, a British online travel company. It floated on the London Stock Exchange with revenues of just six million pounds, yet a valuation of six hundred million. Then the crash came. I'm Caroline Daniel, editor of the Weekend Financial Times. Today, I'm talking to Brent Hoberman, co-founder of LastMinute.com and a serial entrepreneur. We're going to be talking about what's changed in the European tech sector over the last decade. Brent, hi. Wonder if we can just go back in time to、uh, the glory days of '99 and 2000 when you started out. What was it like back then, trying to get funding as a young entrepreneur? Well, I remember one of the first bits of advice Martha Lane Fox and I got from our old boss at our consulting business was, "Who do we know who were two people who'd raised a million dollars off a 30-page business plan?" And at the time, the answer was no one. And that is a dramatic change, right? Because now we all know people, and that story is not extraordinary. At the time, doing that was kind of different. You know, obviously we were naive entrepreneurs, so we thought, of course we'll do it. But actually, what our elders and wiser people were saying, this is going to be really hard, and it would be quite a strange thing for people to actually give you guys money. And as it happened, we did raise six hundred thousand pounds in 1998. When the internet was a very tiny, remember the days of dial-up, and there was no real monetary system around. Google was tiny. So, Brent, just take us back to what it was actually like being in the middle of a bubble. Well, one of the exciting things about when we actually went public was we toured America. We decided we were going to do it very quickly. We knew the timing was great. For those that don't remember, LastMinute.com went. Public well priced itself on March the 10th, which was the day Nasdaq hit its high, Nasdaq 5,000.、Um, but what was interesting about that process is we went public quicker than any other European internet company had gone after launch. So we went public after 18 months after launching our website, and then we raised the price by more than any other company had ever done during the roadshow, which obviously bit us a bit later, but did mean we raised a lot more money. But what was interesting was the view of the analysts was that. It was this sort of what's called a Giffen Good pricing model in the Economist term. This is the higher the price, the more people will buy. So this idea that if your stock is really hot, you're able to sort of show your macho-ness by increasing the price during the roadshow dramatically, and therefore you'll actually get more demand. And in our case, that worked for a brief moment in time. We were 40 times oversubscribed on the day, March the 14th, and then, as history will tell you,、um, it didn't work for long. And if you had to、uh, again look back and be reflective, like an old sage that you are now, what regret do you have? I regret probably that we weren't more agile, and that probably means we bought tons of companies, fourteen businesses across、um, multiple geographies, and the downside of that was we didn't have what I think the key is fewer smarter people. So I think that would have made us more agile. And the second thing is we did invest. It's true to say more in. Amazing talent at the front end, in other words, in marketing and all those sort of sexy areas. Whereas our back office, our financial platform, etc., etc., we sort of trusted to advisors, the big consultancy types, rather than really putting our smartest people on it. And that hurt us as we grew, and meant that we couldn't 
take advantage of some of the opportunities that we I would have otherwise liked to have seen us do. Another good anecdote for Lassman.com, actually, when you think about it, is in 2000, we were quite far ahead in lots of the technologies we see today, things like voice recognition and location-based mobile services. But we were even, many will have forgotten, doing restaurant food delivery in about 2002. We bought a business called Urban Bite. And now, if you look at just that part of the business, if we sort of stuck with it, that business was since sold off by the later acquires of LastMinute.com, acquired by Just Eat, which now is obviously one of Europe's largest and most valuable multi-billion dollar internet companies, just doing one part of that. So there's something about being too early in a sector, but there's also something about sticking with it for longer. What's interesting as well is at the time, and I'd be interested in your take on this now, that it was a real shock to launch a company which was heavily loss-making on the public markets. And now it's obviously de rigueur for an internet company to be heavily loss-making. It's all about growth, building market share really quickly. So perhaps you can talk through your perception of the change in attitudes to making losses. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the constraints of making a profit is your growth is almost limited because you have to watch some of those expense lines and those marketing lines. And a lot depends on what your competitive set is doing. So if the world of your competitors are being funded to an enormous level, so let's look at Rocket Internet in Germany, which I guess is a great exponent now of this idea that you can maybe almost go back to losing money on every order, dare I say it, for some of their businesses, in the belief that in the future the unit economics will improve. So I think what's similar, as you say, to then and now is the fact that this is pre-bubble bursting. The market is prepared to look for some companies into the future and understand that scale benefits will lead to better unit economics. After a bust or after a correction, that changes pretty scarily and dramatically when you are only valued on what you did in the past and not so much on what the future potential or future possibilities and option values are. And as you look at the startup scene now, how would you draw on that experience of having been through a pretty tough cycle after 2000 when money wasn't available? How do you sort of draw on that experience as an entrepreneur at the moment? Well, I think I've definitely been scarred by the fact that our share price obviously went down. You're kind not to mention in your intro, but um, went down. I think we were in the 90 or 95% club of its share price decline. But there was some, dare I say, almost benefits of that in that we had raised £120 million. So we had a large amount of cash in the bank. So obviously, that's a very simplistic entrepreneur message and an obvious lesson to learn. But when the going is good, you want to raise as much as you can. So I've certainly learned that lesson. It's always advice I give for everyone is that You want to, as an entrepreneur, manage your risk profile carefully. And the the riskiest thing is running out of cash when the market shut down. And I think I remember in 2000, there was lots of rhetoric about this time it's different. There won't be a burst. You remember in early 2000, people were saying, no, this will carry on forever. And we're seeing some of that rhetoric today as well, saying, no, there won't be a correction. Um, So I think there is, once again, this debate about will there be a correction And therefore, as an entrepreneur, what do you do about the possibility that there might be? And clearly, the answer is raise as much as you can now. So coming back to the European scene, obviously, this week at Founders Forum, we're going to be looking with the Financial Times at some great entrepreneurs in Europe. And we have a great piece by Nicholas Zenstrom, the uh, founder of Skype, one of the most successful European startups. And he talks about some of the things which are great about Europe, which is although it might not have the same domestic market as America, it has opportunities because it forces you to think internationally from day one. I'd be interested in your take on that. Well, I've always said, maybe not humbly, but I speak on behalf of all European entrepreneurs, that being a European entrepreneur... 
being an entre- European entrepreneur is harder than being an American one in the sense that dealing with the complexities that Europe puts up and the barriers and the protectionist regulations that the EU puts up against businesses trying to scale across Europe and obviously the multi-language and HR regulations and all of those things gives you entrepreneurs who can deal obviously internationally, as Nicholas says, and with great complexity. Except, I mean, I'm just going to pop the European bubble for a moment. Mary Mika has just done some research 20 years on since her first internet report at Morgan Stanley. And her report this week noted that 15 of the most valuable internet companies today have a combined market value of nearly $2.5 trillion. However, none of them are from the European Union. 11 are from the US and 4 are Chinese. So we still have a pretty long way to go for European tech companies, and particularly at the bigger scale. What's your um, view of why Europe hasn't yet delivered those massive internet companies? Well, the counterpoint to that is that we have had 13 unicorn, that's billion plus European startups founded within this year, I think. So there is definitely some phenomenal growth. But I think what the main pressure is, and I, I guess Mary Meeker's data points to this, is the sort of 10 billion plus. And that's where we definitely have a pretty significant European gap. And I argue that that is because of the scaling issue. What tends to happen in Europe is that you scale up to a country level and then you get acquired before you expand rapidly across. Or that the really valuable internet businesses are platform businesses, think LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and none of those, sadly, are European. So what we have to look for now is what are the next areas where we may see breakout European successes that can get that sort of value. We're seeing Europe being a center of artificial intelligence with the acquisition of DeepMind and Facebook separately announcing that they're going to set up an AI center in Paris. So there's a lot of deep science in in that area that's European. I think also the other area, and actually this does link into Founders Forum and a new project we're doing, is the large corporates. And what we can do is get startups that work off the back of the large corporate, whether that's in terms of taking great talent or in terms of leveraging on their scale. I think that's got another area where Europe can win in that I can't think of many cities in the world better than London for access to global corporate bear muscle. Okay, final question. Are we in another bubble? I think most people are tempering their bubble issues with some comments. So the first is that when you see a lot of these super inflated valuations, what you're seeing is investors not actually genuinely buying into those high headline numbers we're seeing. You're seeing a lot of things called preference shares and all sorts of guarantees that these guys are going to get their money back before anyone else. So the company is giving them very sweet terms to have higher headline values. The other thing is we're not seeing as much. We're seeing a bit of this. I think, the, to me, let's turn back to Mary Meeker now, for all those, all those years ago, where... Who was indeed your um, analyst, I think. Who was our analyst, and she had a great quote. She got a bit chastised for not sort of predicting it. But she did say one thing pre-bubble. She said that you can't value all these companies as if they're going to win in their sector. So those that are going to win are massively undervalued, but 90% of them will fail because they're not going to win. And I think today... We're seeing a bit of that where there is a bit of the, for example, people grabbing onto the Uber valuation of 50 plus billion and doing Uber for everything, you know, Uber for services and all of these things. And you're seeing multiple players in those spaces. I think there'll have to be some consolidation and shake out there. But big picture, you're not seeing normal consumers' money invested in the public markets at businesses that have enormous risk profiles. I was speaking to Brent Hoberman, founder of lastminute.com. 
For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.